This is the Modern Stoicism Podcast. I'm your host, Adam. Joining me on the podcast this week is Michael Mick Patrick Mulroy. Mick is a former United States Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for the Middle East. He is a retired Central Intelligence Agency paramilitary operations officer and United States Marine. In addition, he is a senior fellow for National Security and Defense Policy at the Middle East Institute, a member of the Board of Directors for Grassroots Reconciliation Group, and an ABC News National Security Analyst. So, Mick, thank you very much for being with us on the podcast today. Uh, Thank you for having me, Adam. So, Mick, you wrote an article for the Stoicism Today blog. And before we get into the article, though, I would like to ask you a more general question, which is, um, how did you get introduced to Stoicism? So, as I mentioned in the article, um, when I was a child, my father actually used to teach ethics um, and morality, um, mostly from Greek philosophers. He was a uh, Catholic priest prior to me, obviously. Um, He didn't teach it as a religion or any kind of substitute for it, but he used it as a way to talk about different situations in which you'd have a moral or ethical dilemma and you'd have to decide it. So he he, uh, was particularly fond of Plato's Republic. So that is the book that we used the most, and that's the one uh, that I still, and I taught my kids the same way, you know, um, obviously, uh, all the things that Plato talked about in the book, you know, Socrates, especially being one of the key figures in, in the history of Stoicism, that's really where I got introduced to it. And then, you know, the concepts that I'm sure we're going to discuss, like the philosopher king, um, which is, I think, uh, leads directly into what was one of the main parts of the paper, which was, uh, Marcus Aurelius. Let's jump in then now. What what did you mean when you say philosopher king? Yeah, so like I said, when we studied the the republic, there was a lot of concepts in there that really played out later in life for me. You know, I referenced uh the cave, which I think, you know, the allegory of the cave and the need that once people uh, have knowledge, they have a responsibility to teach it. Um, I also referenced uh, the rig of Gyges, which at least the concept the way I, and I, and, and I, and I told you before, I'm not an, I'm not a philosopher. I'm not trained in this. I'm an amateur at best, but the way I interpreted that story, for example, is that even if nobody can see you, because the whole idea is uh, you turn your ring around and you turn invisible, you still have an obligation to be moral. And my last career, which as you know, the Central Intelligence Agency, I always thought that had a particularly fitting uh, part of that because that's one of the few organizations, at least in my country, that does things that are officially uh, covert, but, uh, you know, with the idea of that being invisible using the allegory. But you still have an absolute moral obligation to do the right thing. And then directly to your question, something that I was always fascinated was with, is the philosopher king? So in this, I don't, I don't, I am not putting up the idea of some benevolent, albeit intellectual monarch. I am talking about it in the sense that this person should be an example for what we'd want in leadership. I think 
Plato to give him credit. And, and in the book itself, I mean, there's a lot of things to criticize. It's not, it's not that it's not uh, always correct. It's more about you really need to try to gain knowledge from it. And when it comes to the philosopher king, I thought Plato really did a good job in three main parts. The first was equality, right? So if you look at how he described the guardians, um, it was it was open to females as well. Uh, obviously, something we'd all agree with today, but it, it wasn't. It wasn't what Athens was at the time. So he was somewhat revolutionary in that thought. He thought that you could have essentially a philosopher queen. The second thing, it was all based on meritocracy. So the kid, it didn't matter if you were born to aristocracy, wealth, or you were the the cobbler's son or daughter. Um, it really had the idea that anybody could grow up to be the philosopher king of the Calipolis that he called the just society. And then the third part that I think Plato did a really good job in expounding on and, and is what most people think of when they think of a philosopher king is that it's somebody who embraces wisdom, embraces the idea of learning and discovery. And that person, the, what my definition would be an intellectual. Um, not, for example, somebody who denied science, um, but somebody who actually embraced it and actually was a part of the discovery of knowledge. And I think those are the three aspects of the way Plato described it that I would have carried forward in in what my concept would be of a philosopher king. So you very much wrote an article that talks about members of history that sort of embodied this in the past for you, as well as talked about the philosophers who wrote the construct of the philosopher king that you seemed, it sounds like you wish to see that embodied in the surroundings around you. So I guess a, follow, a, a good question to ask at this point is, so what made you want to write an article at this time that uh, described the philosopher king and talked about today? Was it, was it, did you feel like there was an erosion of principles within our society or did you feel like this is a time for us to stand up and instead reinforce our principles? So that's, that's a really good question. And actually I did feel like there was a erosion in principles. And then I started doing some research and I found out that I wasn't alone. So you can see the statistics that I referenced in the paper, but I mean, almost half of the uh, of Americans believe that they have a poor, we have a poor ethical standard in, in our country. Um, and another 36 think it's just percent, think it's just fair. 77% think that we have gone significantly down than in the past. And then if you look at all of our, um, uh, everybody else in the world, I think it was 50% have gotten a worse opinion of Americans in just the last few years. So I'm sure there was a lot that is attributed to that. But from my perspective, you can't, you have to address that. You know, we have to teach our kids not just, you know, how to do coding, for example, not there's anything wrong with that, or, you know, the STEM, you know, the science and technology and math, et cetera. That's all important, but I think we have to go back uh, or certainly go to a place where we're teaching ethics and morality. It's not just something that can be taught at, at a religious, in, uh, you know, place of worship, but for all kids, 
because it is at the core of everything we do in society, whether it's business or just interpersonal relationships or is it war or peace? Is it, you know, no matter Main Street or Wall Street, all the, all the examples that you could come up with at the core of human interaction is that ethical standard that we all trust each other. And I think we are going into a place sometimes enhanced by technology where we don't actually have interpersonal relationships and sometimes by the personality that dominates. Um, that's not what I think, the, at least, I, and, and this is worldwide. I wrote it for my own country because I think it was so stark here, but it is something that we could, we could do in the, in, in the United States that would really um, get us back to a place where we do trust one another and we have an ethical standard. And to the extent that, you know, oh, you're talking Shangri-La, you're talking about living in a perfect world. Well, first of all, I didn't live in a perfect world. I spent my entire career in conflict zones. Uh, I am what's called a paramilitary officer of the agent uh, CIA, I was. Uh, I know what I know what the world can be, and I'm not. I don't have a Pollyannish view of it. Um, but I think we need to do better when it comes to our kids. Just like Aurelia said, if you don't want to teach them, then you're going to have to live in bare and bear the burden of that not non-willingness to teach. But I would say for the people that just can't accept that, we have to increase our ethical regulations and laws, and we have to hold people accountable to those those uh, those laws and regulations. So your article cites a number of uh, major historical figures, both Plato and Socrates, as well as Marcus Aurelius, who himself is is... I think in your list, he may be the only one who, who people would clearly associate with Stoicism. Socrates definitely is seen by Stoics as a progenitor, but certainly I don't know that everyone draws that delineation. Yeah. So my question then is, um, you know, Stoicism is generally called, I think Massimo Piliucci calls it this as well as others. It's a virtue ethics system whereby you, you work off of four cardinal virtues to lead yourself down the path of true eudaimonia or happiness, which is not, it's not a great translation, but like, how do you, how, why do you think stoicism fits so well in that as a virtue ethic system? Is it because of its hard delineation of four key virtues? Or do you just think it's, it works for some other reason? Yeah. So to start with Socrates, right? You know, Socrates came around uh, and it was in within like 10 years, both Socrates, Confucius and Buddha came around right so a pretty pretty important era of humanity and then if you and then to your point about you know socrates is definitely anchored i think in stoicism um as you can use the example of when zeno was shipwrecked and walked into a bookstore heard the book teller uh reading socrates aloud and basically said where do i find such men the guy just pointed to a guy walking up the street and at least when my dad taught it that's how that's how um Stoicism was eventually derived between Zeno and the person who followed up the street from Piraeus to Athens, right? So yeah, I we still tell that I, story today. <laughs> to be frank, yeah. we still tell that story today. Yeah, it's a perfect story, right? Because he just lost everything he owned, you know, in the shipwreck. And so that's that's part of what I always, you know, the way I've always viewed Stoicism is it comes from that kind of origin. So it was Socrates, the person who in many ways exemplified that, you know, the guy didn't own anything, walked around disheveled and with no shoes on. And, and he actually wore the blanket that he slept under. Um, so, but Aurelius 
Yeah, oh, to go to your first thing on, on, the, on the principles of stoicism. The way I always viewed it, it was, you know, living a simple life and not putting stock in material goods or material things. You know, I, we have to have them, but that's not the purpose of life, right? Having integrity and knowing that at the end of the day, that's all that, that really matters. And then having the ability and having the, the desire to want to help others. Um, all the while understanding that things happen in life, right? You have to have the ability to accept that. You know, I used to box and I used to be a boxing coach. And one of the first things, and this isn't unique to me, but a lot of boxing coaches say this, is there is no doubt if you keep boxing that you're going to get knocked down. There's no question about that. The only question is whether you're going to get back up. I have always viewed that, you know, as this stoic kind of philosophy because it is it is at the end of the day not life isn't about avoiding getting knocked down life in many ways is accepting that if you're trying hard to do all those other things i mentioned you probably are going to get knocked down and it's really and you have to accept that up front because your what you're going to judge yourself on is how you got back up so i do think that that is uh at least to me the way i've always viewed some of the main principles of what it would be to be a Stoic. I think Marcus Aurelius not only exemplified those, but he did in a way that was such an extreme when it came to an actual, like, um, sacrifice not, might not be the best word. But as I pointed out, and as I'm sure all your listeners know, I mean, he was the emperor of Rome. So he had everything he ever would have wanted. He could have indulged in everything that he wanted. Nobody would have said anything, certainly, but they may not even expected him not to do that. But he didn't. When it came to, um, you know, material goods, when he was a kid, I learned it, he slept on a straw mat rather than the trappings of uh, the palace. You know, he judged himself through meditations. He talked about the things he should be doing and what he fell short on doing. He was he became a general, one of the most famous ever, and he, he shared the sacrifices of his soldiers, staying on the front lines and during the frozen winters of northern Europe and all the all the disease and everything that came with uh, fighting campaigns at that time. So I thought I I used him not because he was especially better than some of the other people I mentioned, but because it was he he didn't have to be. I mean, it's easier to give up material goods when you don't have it. You know what I mean? That, that was kind of the reason why I wanted to highlight him. And then, of course, as Marcus Aurelius kind of exemplifies, I'm sure many of your listeners, our listeners also know, Stoicism is very popular in the military. And, you know, I, I spent a career in the, in the Marine Corps as well as the agency, where not only Stoicism, but actually Marcus Aurelius and, and, the, and his meditations are required reading. I want to highlight two quick things that you were talking about there. Um, I think, you know, there's a common misconception with Stoicism, which which is inter- interesting because it feeds into one of the things that you highlighted, which is, um, in fact, Marcus actually uses this allegory of the boxer himself. He says at some point, I don't wish to, I don't wish to be a gladiator who requires a sword. I wish to be a boxer, a paraphrasing, of course, but he says, I wish to be a boxer because my weapons are with me at all times. I'm, I'm, I need merely clench my fists. And what he's really speaking to there is this general con- 
conception that this general concept, excuse me, that you're, you're always going to face these things. And, and, and we are not trying to strangle ourselves out of emotions. For example, we expect to feel those emotions. We are not Vulcans as most people like to use as a, as a, as a reference point, but certainly we don't wish to be emotionless. We, we merely wish to understand that we shall have emotions and we don't wish to be controlled by them. And then in parallel to that, you know, this understanding that things are going to happen, they may not go according to plan, they may go awry. If you've been in conflict zones, you'll likely be someone who would say, you know, plans are great, but they generally fall apart before they start, right? And certainly in the Stoic world, there's a practice called premeditatio malorum, or the premeditation of adversity, whereby you strictly say to yourself, this may, this may go wrong, this may fall apart, but I'm going to do the best that I can in order to um, live and fulfill the, my, my wish to be virtuous, my, my wish to follow the ethics that I've set out for myself. So it's a, it's very interesting that, that those are the things that you highlight right there because they're so deeply ingrained within the philosophy. But I wanted to ask you a question as well, because it sounds like a lot of what you're talking about is that we as citizens, as humans, we, we need to make a choice. And this is another theme that is very much deep within Sto- within the Stoic world. We usually tell the stories of the choice of Heracles, where Heracles chooses whether or not to be virtuous or vice or vice ridden. And um, I was speaking about this with Chris Gill. I think you and I spoke about this when we were on our call, first call, which was uh, we were talking about the choice that we must make as people, as citizens uh, of the universe. So. When you speak about this ethics, what what do you, what sort of choice do you think people should be making? And and of course, we can't tell them what choice to make. But do you think what what where do you think people should start when thinking about the choice they should make around the fact that we need to get back to this baseline ethical level? Well, first of all, I'm totally going to steal that example you set up front for when I start coaching boxing again because that was awesome. Um, and you're, and it's really cool that I'm learning stuff while I'm doing a podcast because I, I, I should be taking notes. So I might have to come back to you on some of this stuff. But no, I do, I do very much agree, um, at least the way I view it, that it's not about being emotionalist. You know, the, the, the stoic, you know, at least is a lot of people see him as somebody who just, you know, is like a stone, right? Or like used to like a Vulcan. And that's, I don't think that's the case at all. And it's, and I, and no stoic I ever talked to actually does as well it's more like a misperception as you said uh it's more about accepting the fact and being and being ready for um that things aren't always going to go your way you're not living in a bubble and you're right in a in a war zone conflict zone um things almost never go your way so if you if you don't if you're not willing to accept that and maybe that's why the philosophy is so well um respected inside military ranks and it probably has been ever since meditation um was published after earliest his death quite frankly it's not it's not exclusive to the u.s military but that's probably why it is so uh well respected um to your point on what what does this mean when it comes to everyday people and this this idea of what they should be doing i think now in modern times it's easy to say well i can't i don't have any effect on this there's hundreds of million people in my country I'm just one person, and because of COVID, I sit, I am pretty um, secluded to my house. I would say you can't do that. I mean, that's that's whether you're stoic or not, or just a citizen of any country, you have a responsibility for what your society is or is not. And if you're if you're not going to hold up 
an ethical person, and this isn't just about political leadership, but it's just one of the bigger examples. As people, you want your kids to emulate, not just because they may do something for you specifically, like cut your taxes or provide you some benefit. But if they can't actually be somebody you would say to your son or daughter that he or she is is somebody you should emulate, then I think you're you shouldn't put them in a position of power. And it's not all I mean, there's people should come from all walks of life, and that's why when I put the list in there, it isn't just political figures. In fact, very few actual political figures would actually make that list, which is part of the problem. I think we should get to a point where individuals and parties demand ethical and moral action. Not a religious test at all, but there are standards that I think um, we can all agree on. And if they can't, then they can't be there. And that's that's uh, my my position on that. Well, I appreciate you. Uh, I appreciate you giving that position. So I'd like to pivot to something um, else that you spoke about earlier, which is uh, so slight slight change of topic for now, which is the. The idea of wisdom, you you talk about it as a major point that um, Plato and Socrates both would have spoken of. And it does seem, because when you speak about our centers of education, our centers of learning, um, they're very fact-oriented right now, whereby, as you said, like I work in a STEM field myself. I'm I'm an engineering technologist. That's what I do for a living. But um, it's funny you mentioned about wisdom because wisdom seems to be this greater concept of not just understanding math and how to spell correctly. It does seem to be a continual search, for example. And um, what I'd love to ask you is because you, what you speak about a, a lot sort of in parallel throughout your article is these readings, all of, or all of these writings, excuse me, that you've read through your life, meditations, Plato's Republic, etc., um, and so my question is, is how important do you think reading is um, in terms of returning us to this level of ethical, you know, this minimum ethical level that you, you are seeing in your mind? Because to me, reading is so, so important um, today. And it's not just reading about math. It's reading, reading about all different concepts and things like that. So how important do you think it is in your mind? Yeah, so on the concept of reading... I mean, I'm a big reader. I imagine most of your listeners are big readers. I think it there's something about it that allows you to innovate and, and almost be creative when you're reading that you don't get when you're watching a television show or a movie or something like that. The reason being is it's coming at you. It'll, it'll keep coming at you in a television show or with reading, you can sometimes get lost in the thought that you just read. And then you just jump back into the book. So I, and, and of course there's concepts. If you look at most television shows, they basically have the same kind of format and you just do it over and over again with different people playing parts. Whereas books, they run the gamut. They have ideas from multiple different centuries from mul multiple different cultures. Uh, I think, I think reading is still and probably always will be right now uh, the best way of learning. When it comes to wisdom, I do. To, everything you just said, Adam, I think was the way, is the way I look at wisdom. It's not just like rote memorization. Uh, computers can do that. Uh, it's more about creativity and innovation, embracing science. And when you embrace science, science changes as it learns. 
So it's not dogmatic. It's not stuck in some uh, scripture from a long time ago. It is, it is about trying to learn what we don't know and wisdom. And so it's not just, you know, if people can, can be very smart at certain summits and that's a positive, but if they're not creative, then it doesn't necessarily advance uh, humanity as much as somebody who isn't innovative. And I think we should teach to that. So in schools, for example, if we're teaching just like how to do coding, I think we're for math or rogue memorization of historical dates, I think we're failing the students. I think some of that is required, but it's got to be more about how to think creative. I also think that if we're teaching any kind of specific agenda, like in our colleges, where it's more about you have to repeat the way I think about the world, then we're also failing our students. Uh, you should be free to be um, a free thinker. I mean, I mean, think about when you know Plato started the academy. The idea that today it's it's more about repeating an agenda than it is about debating whether the the agenda is correct. I think is just the wrong answer. So, you know, whether it's somebody who denies science or whether it's somebody who thinks that teaching a student is teaching them to think like me, I think both of those concepts are wrong, and we should get away from them. I'd like to talk about one last concept here. And this is something that I, I got from your article, I think reading through the lines, but also you and I have spoken about this a little bit off of offline, which was, uh, you know, you keep using the words people and not just you, meaning that it's about people in these, in these circumstances, people sharing wisdom, people discussing wisdom. And one of the topics that you and I spoke about, and I think this is a general theme that I feel from your article is that we must get to a point where we can have discourse on this. Um, and how important do you think that is right now? Because it feels to me in many cases, like we are far removed from the ability to have common discourse without someone either becoming hyper galvanized to a specific topic or becoming incredibly um, irritated by the person wanting to have a different point of view. So how important do you think discourse really is in our path to return to this sort of level of ethics that you speak of? Yeah, so my dad used to say, in polite company, you're not supposed to talk about religion or politics, but then <laughs> said, we're Irish American, so the only thing we do talk about is, our, is uh, religion and politics. So, so maybe it was, it was just expected, uh, and, you know, and we had some different, like a lot of families, we had different political views. I do think at one time, you know, I mean, it might have always been somewhat contentious, but I think in the past that because... Um, I guess we weren't so extreme in our politics, at least in our country, that people could have a discussion in the middle, even if they weren't necessarily in the middle. And there was some middle ground. Uh, I, I, I don't have any specific facts on this, but I would say that that has changed quite a bit. I've heard people like actually explain it's because we're actually geographically locating the areas where people actually think like us. So now we're not even around and have experience with other way of thinking. Uh, if that's true, that's probably one of the reasons why we're more on the polar uh, on the polar extremes. So I think discourse probably needs to be taught at the same time we're teaching ethics. Like you have to be able to disagree with somebody without being disagreeable, to use an overused cliche, but it's true. That is extraordinarily important. To your point about, you know, it's not about one particular person, it's about everybody. It's not going to work unless 
everybody embraces it. So we're all here a short period of time and then we're not. We pass it on what we can to our kids and our, our friends' kids. Um, if you don't get everybody to, to at least accept the idea that society won't function well, if at all, without these core bedrock principles um, that don't need to be tied to any particular you know, culture or religion, it's just basic human ethics, then we're going to have a hard time going forward as we get more challenges um, ahead. You know, we, we are going to, we have, you have climate change, you have overpopulation, you have limited resources or dwindling resources. You're going to have all these things that come up. And uh, the more that we can work together to tackle them, the better we'll all be. So it certainly is not about the individual. It's about uh, you know, the overall tribe. Well, Mick, I, I definitely agree with what you were saying there. And you speak about, there's a line in your article that I, that I, I really think speaks to this, which is that we are a democracy led by leaders that we elected. So very much it's a responsibility of everyone to make the choice that is appropriate for them and appropriate for the situation they would like to see reflected in, you know, the society around them. Well, Mick, thank you very much for being with us today on the podcast. I wish we could speak more. I certainly uh, would love to have you back on at a later date. Absolutely. I'd love to come back on and I'd love to come to Stoicon 2021, right? If it happens. Uh, Absolutely. Maybe it happens virtually. Yeah, that would be that would be super cool. I need to start learning more about what I've actually been learning about my whole life. <laughs> Well, thank you again, and definitely I'll send you an invitation. Cheers. Thank you, Adam. Salacha. I'd like to thank Mick Mulroy for being on the podcast this week. Mick is also on the board of directors at the Grassroots Reconciliation Group, an award-winning nonprofit that works to rehabilitate children that have been forced to fight in the Lord's Resistance Army in East Africa. He is also the co-founder of the Lobo Institute, a group that studies conflicts and how to end them and the co-founder of the charity End Child Soldiering that seeks to help rehabilitate former child soldiers worldwide. Thanks for listening to the Modern Stoicism podcast this week. If you'd like to learn more, head over to modernstoicism.com where you can find articles, courses, our Patreon, and other resources. This week on the Stoicism Today blog, Greg Sadler has written an article entitled Interview with Stoicon 2020 Speakers, Chuck Chakrapani. You've been listening to the Modern Stoicism Podcast, the official podcast of modernstoicism.com. Check out all of our episodes at modernstoicismpodcast.buzzsprout.com. And if you like this content, consider rating us or giving us a thumbs up on your podcast platform of choice. You can also find us on Patreon, where patrons get access to exclusive digital content. All music provided by bensound.com.